Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms. I'll be reading part of Psalm 74, just looking at one paragraph from this psalm, verses 12 through 17. So let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's Word as it's found in Psalm 74, verses 12 to 17. But God is my King from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. And you established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let us pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is truth, And who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would sweeten this part of your word in our hearts and in our minds. That together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made. That we might more enjoy the calling you have given to us. And that we might honor you more along the path of life. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who reigns together with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we have been, uh, I hope, enjoying our time in the Scriptures, talking about uh, the Maker of heaven and earth. Uh, If you weren't here over the weekend on Friday, we started with that line from the Apostles' Creed. Maker of heaven and earth. We noticed that it was not in the original Roman uh, creed, the old Roman creed, about 400, but by 700 it was added to the Apostles' Creed, and we figured that addition must be for a reason. And we looked at how that confession of Maker in heaven and earth is part of the Apostolic Church. Uh, Christians from the Christian church, broadly speaking, disagree on many, many things, but we can all gather one place, one time, and agree as we confess the Apostles' Creed. Then on Saturday morning, we looked at uh, a couple of things, focusing our attention primarily on ancient images, kind of trying to take off our own modern Uh, shoes and put on ancient sandals and begin to look at the world the way ancients looked at it, begin to study the imagery in the Bible that comes from an ancient point of view and not a modern point of view. And so we looked at some general images, ancient images of creation, and then we focused our attention on some imagery in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. How the Bible speaks of God anthropomorphically 
Uh, that is, as if he's in the form of a human being, speaks of God as if God has eyes and hands and feet, when God is spirit and doesn't have a body like us. And then we looked at some other images uh, in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, in particular, we looked at that uh, dome image, the solid dome that holds the water up and has to have windows in it in order for rain to come down. This morning, we kind of tackled a, a different kind of question. How do science and theology interface with each other? And if you were here and you maybe forget everything I said except one thing, if you weren't here, uh, kind of you can summarize my whole uh, our Sunday school class There's the interface between science and theology. Science is answering questions like, how was that made? Um, what's it made out of? Theology is answering questions like, who's the big person behind the human ability to even make that thing? And why are those human beings around? That science answers certain questions, theology answers different questions, and we put them together to get a very robust view uh, of the world. Well, uh, I actually wrote a sermon for this morning. And it was called The Fourth Commandment and Genesis 1. Completed the whole sermon. My preparations were done. This is about a week or so ago. And then I woke up one morning. I have the strangest thoughts sometimes right when I wake up. Not when I get in the shower, that's too late. Like as soon as I'm coming to consciousness, and as soon as I was coming to consciousness one morning, I said, no, nah, that's not a very good sermon. You've got to do something else. I had actually planned on preaching on Psalm 74, but then I decided not to preach on that, but to go to something that was a little safer. Uh, the fourth commandment in Genesis 1. But then I, I guess I, I either had a moment of clarity or senility. You'll have to judge after the sermon. But I decided to go back and write a sermon on this text. It's a, it's a text that I have thought about frequently. I've studied it. I've never preached on it before. So uh, part of the reason why I've never preached on it was because I'm not sure how people will respond when they find out that there are sea dragons in the Bible with multiple heads. But here we go. We're going to look at these uh, few verses, 12 to 17. And uh, first, I want to just kind of set the stage for what this text is talking about big picture. And after looking at the setting, I do want to analyze the, uh, the, the imagery that's there. Once we understand what these images of uh, Leviathan and, and the sea and the sea monster with multiple heads is, once we see that, then we can say, well, okay, what's the, what's the, um, the significance of that symbolism uh, for us? So let's begin by just looking at the setting. What's this text talking about big picture? Well, it says, God is my king from long ago. God is my king. Metaphors are very important in the Bible. In the book of Psalms, and I've studied the book of Psalms, I've written professionally on the book of Psalms, um, 
more than any other part of the Bible. I've preached on the Psalms. I've taught on the Psalms. Uh, this is kind of my wheelhouse. Uh, whenever somebody says, now, can you do a devotional for us, like in 10 minutes? I'll say, sure, but it's going to be on a Psalm. Uh, it's just my go-to. God has fed my own soul through the Psalms more than any other part of the book, any other part of the Bible. Martin Luther called the book of Psalms a little Bible. Because everything that is found in the Bible is found in one way or another uh, in the book of Psalms. So the dominant metaphor for God in the book of Psalms is king. A couple years ago, we studied the Psalms together, and I said that Psalm 1 gives us the purpose of the Psalms. It's, a, it's an instruction manual to teach us how to flourish in life. And then Psalm 2 gives us the main message of the Psalms, and that is, God is king. And that, that kingship motif, that metaphor, runs through the whole of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms does have a heart. It really has a center And that center is Psalms 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99. And in all of those Psalms, this is the simple message. God is king. God is king. God is king. God is king. And the book of Psalms is actually put together to teach us how to live in a world and flourish believing that God is king when everything we watch on the news says... That's not the case. Your neighbor will tell you, I'll grant you one of two things that you believe. You believe in a good God. and You believe in a God who's in control. I'll give you one. I'm not giving you both. Why not? I watch the news. If there's a good God, if there's a good God out there, he's certainly not in control. How do you explain what happens in the world if there's a good God out there? He's not in control. If there's a God in control, he's not good. How do I know? Just watch the news. If there's somebody in control, he can't be good because look at all the bad stuff that happens. The kingship of God, the book of Psalms is teaching us how to live in a world where God is king, even though there is a lot of evidence to the contrary. We walk by faith and not by sight. So God is my king from long ago. And that long ago goes all the way back to creation. That's where this psalm is set. It's describing things that happened back at the time of creation a long, long time ago. Look at verse 15. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. Uh, an oblique reference to God getting rid of all of the water that existed in Genesis 1-2, separation of the sea and dry land, provision of that groundwater that comes up from the bottom, uh, rainwater that comes down from the top. Verse 16, the day is yours and yours also the night. Uh, the creation of light and the separation of light and darkness, day and night. You establish the sun and the moon. We talked about that this morning, the fourth day of creation, where God creates the sun and the moon as the big and the little light and also the stars. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. 
So clearly this text is talking about God being my king from a long time ago. How long ago? All the way back to in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, God is my king from long ago. It says he brings salvation on the earth. Now, when we as New Testament Christians hear the word salvation, we tend to think immediately and, and narrowly about forgiveness of sins and going to heaven. That's what salvation is. I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. Um, that's true. That's very important. But salvation, especially in the book of Psalms, is much bigger than that. King David will say, God, I'm going out to battle against my enemies save me. He's not saying forgive my sins and let me go to heaven. He's saying let me win the battle. Uh, David will say, God, I am sick. Save me. He doesn't want his sins forgiven. He doesn't want to go to heaven. He wants to be healed from his illness. God, I'm going to court tomorrow and um, there are false accusers lined up to speak to the elders in the gate. Save me. He doesn't want his sins forgiven and to go to heaven. He wants the elders to vindicate him. Salvation is broad in the book of Psalms. A good word is deliverance. Do you need deliverance from uh, false accusers? Salvation. Do you need deliverance from illness? Salvation. Do you need deliverance from enemies who are outnumbering your troops? Salvation. So when the text says that back at the time of creation, God brings salvation on the earth, it doesn't mean he was there to forgive people's sins and to grant them entrance into heaven. Remember Genesis 1-2, which sets the stage for the creation story. Everything was formless and void. Can you survive in some place that has no form and is empty? Can you thrive there? Can you flourish there? No. There was also darkness. Darkness everywhere. Light hadn't been created yet. Can you survive and thrive and flourish in a world that is totally dark? No. This darkness was over the surface of the deep. Water, water everywhere. Can you survive and thrive And flourish in a world that is all water? No. Sounds to me like there needs to be some deliverance. Deliverance from the darkness. Deliverance from the water. Deliverance from the the formlessness and void. That's why on day one, what does God do? God delivers us from the darkness, darkness everywhere by creating light. What does God do on the next day? He delivers us from the water by separating the water uh, and the land so that there's now a place where there's light and darkness and dry land. We can grow crops. We can have cattle and sheep and goats. We can survive. We can thrive. We can flourish as human beings. The first three days of uh, Genesis 1, the first three days can kind of be viewed as God creating the rooms. Uh, it's now no longer formless. 
And then the next three days, God fills up those rooms. It's no longer empty. So in the creation story, it really is a story of salvation in the sense of deliverance. God delivering from formless and void and darkness over the surface of the deep. So that's what this text is talking about. It's talking about God's work at the time of creation. Now we've got to look at the imagery that is used to describe this work of deliverance. And here we meet three monsters. I don't know, that kind of sounds like this is a commercial for Monsters, Inc. or something. But that's what we really have in our text. We have three monsters. Monster number one, it was you who split open sea. Now, the Hebrew word for sea is the word yam. And it would be spelled Y-A-M-M. And um, if we capitalize the word yam, then it's a proper noun. And Israelites, Israel's Canaanite neighbors actually worshipped the sea. And they worshipped a god, and the god's name was Yom. The Hebrew word Yom, the Canaanite word Yom, this is kind of like much closer than, say, Spanish and Portuguese, or Spanish and Italian, or Dutch and German. These are really close cousins. Maybe more like uh, the Spanish of Spain and the Spanish of Puerto Rico. Uh, different, pretty much the same language. So there's our Yom. It does mean the sea, like the Mediterranean. But in the ancient Canaanite world, Israel's ancient Canaanite neighbors, Yom was the god who controlled the Yom. And Yom is a monster, a sea monster. Uh, monster number two, um, you broke the heads of the monster in the waters. This is not Yom. In Hebrew, this is not Yom. This is Tanim. Uh, T-A-N-N-I-N. Tanim. And did you notice that Tanim had multiple heads? That's pretty weird. Have you seen any multiple-headed creatures running around lately? You can probably find some on YouTube. Uh, but whether or not those are real or doctored up, I, I don't know. But here we have a, a multi-headed monster. So we got Yom, number one, Tanin, number two, translated as monster. And then monster number three, it was you who crushed the heads, notice plural, of Leviathan. Now our translations use a capital letter. What's the difference between Baker with a lower case B and Baker with an uppercase B? Baker with an uppercase B is what? It's a name. So when our translations don't translate Leviathan, they just bring it into English characters and they put a capital L. They're telling us that Leviathan is what? It's a name. 
It's a name of a particular monster. This monster also occurs in the book of Job. Now, as we talked this morning about interfacing with science, just to throw in a note, you can open up commentaries uh, either with Leviathan here or in the book of Job, and people are going to get into arguments as to whether or not this is like uh, a dinosaur, uh, a rhinoceros, a crocodile, a hippopotamus. But I think you'll know from my discussion over the whole weekend that my answer to that is, oh, you're going in completely the wrong direction if you're trying to harmonize this language with known creatures in our world. That's not what the ancients are thinking of. So we got these three monsters. Yom, sea, Tanin, monster, and Leviathan. And two of them are multi-headed creatures. Now one other thing. It's important to see the order that these words are in in our text. Yom is number one, Tanin is number two, and Leviathan is number three. You with me? Okay, that's a pretty simple point. Nothing too profound theologically there. My point is just to unpack a little bit the imagery for us that we got three monsters. They're all associated with the sea, and they're in a specific order. Now, the specific order is important. I started by telling you a, a story about meeting a friend uh, on passing escalators, real long ones at a convention center, and I had just read a new book by him, and as I caught his eye and we were crossing on the escalator, I said, Mike, I just read your new book, and his immediate response was, anybody remember, are we still friends? Okay. I hope after this point, we're still friends. Now, this psalm, oh, was written sometime 900s B.C., 800s B.C., maybe back to uh, 1000 B.C. These Canaanite neighbors of, uh, of ancient Israel, there's a story about a little, a little shepherd boy, and the shepherd boy is playing soccer out in a big field north of Israel, and when he goes to kick the soccer ball, he misses the soccer ball, and he kicks a stone, and believe it or not, he unearths an entire city civilization that had been lost to humanity. There was a kingdom city north of Israel called Ugarit. And when archaeologists went and started to dig up this city, lo and behold, this city had a phenomenal library. And unlike Israelite libraries where stuff was written on leather and would decay over time, these folks wrote on stone. And this library is preserved. And so we can read stories uh, from this library. And as a matter of fact, we can read some religious stories. Anybody remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? Uh, who is the alternative deity vying for the hearts of the ancient Israelites? Baal. Because uh, as we saw earlier in the weekend, 
Israelite and Canaanite farmers had something in common. They lived in a land where there was no irrigation. So if they wanted to grow crops, they were dependent on rain falling from heaven. Well, which of those ancient Israelite farmers had the power to bring rain from heaven? None of them. So what did the Israelites and the Canaanites together have to do? They had to depend upon God to provide rain. And the quintessential blessing in the Old Testament is rain. Because if you have rain, you have every... I have no doubt if we could go back in time and say to the average Israelite, you get one blessing, what do you want? They would say, I want rain. Because if I have rain, I have grain. And if I have grain, I have life. And I can trade and I can barter. Everything is dependent on the blessing of rain. So the chief deity... The question of Elijah on Mount Carmel is, who's God? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Because the people were drifting to follow Baal. And so God said, okay, you're going that direction. Guess what? You know those windows in heaven? I'm shutting them. There's not, Elijah says there's going to be no dew and no rain until I say so. So after a three-year drought, Elijah meets the uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and they do the whole fire-making stuff to see who can set fire with no matches. And they weren't even allowed the Boy Scout flint thing going on. All they could do was ask Baal or ask the Lord. They're dan- the Baal prophets are dancing and praying and cutting themselves No one listened, no one listened, no one listened. Then Elijah, with very great simplicity, says, God, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your prophet. And lightning comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the altar, sucks up all the water that's in the moat around the altar. And the people say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then the story ends when God sends rain off of the Mediterranean. The point being, Baal was the alternative to the Lord because Baal was the God that the Canaanite neighbors thought would bring a life of flourishing. Rain and all the flourishing that comes in its wake. So we find this one particular story about Baal in this Canaanite library. Very interesting story. Comes from about 1400 B.C., way before our psalm. And guess what this story tells us that Baal did? Number one, Baal beat up Yom. Number two, Baal beat up Tanin. Number three, Baal then beat up Leviathan. The exact same three sea monsters in the exact same order. Now, I can only come to one conclusion. Our poet in Psalm 74 knew that story and was using the language of that story to make a theological point about the Lord. Now, that story in the Canaanite library is old Canaanite mythology. Okay, let's all pay attention. If you have a hearing aid in, turn it up. I do not believe there are any myths in the Bible. But I do believe 
that this poet and others are willing to use the language of Canaanite mythology in order to teach truth about God. Maybe you didn't notice it, but when I was reading the text, I was emphasizing the pronoun you, 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 you. The pronoun you occurs seven times, and seven is a number of perfection. It's a number of emphasis. The poet is emphasizing that it is not Baal who defeats, but it's the Lord who defeats. You, 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 you. Now, this might make you a little bit nervous that I'm saying there's the language of mythology in the Bible. Remember, what did I just say? No what in the Bible. No myths. But the language of other people's myths. Let me give you an illustration to try to help make this clear, like hopefully the water bottle did. Let's say that it's the Sunday after Disney releases The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, the pastor wants to show the congregation that he is like hip and in touch with uh, pop culture. So in his sermon, he wants to make the point that God is really at work in the world. But he doesn't say God is at work in the world. Does anybody know what he might say to connect with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. And everybody, presumably, who knows the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or has seen the movie, they will know that when the the pastor says Aslan is on the move, he means God is at work. They also know that the fact that the pastor said Aslan is on the move does not mean that the pastor believes that there's a wardrobe in a house in London that you can go through the back of and enter a place called Narnia and have a chat with Mrs. Beaver. Right. They all know that the pastor doesn't believe that Narnia is a real story about a real place. They all know that this is one of C.S. Lewis's. It starts with an M. It's one of C.S. Lewis's mythic writings. So the author doesn't believe the myth is real, but he's willing to use the language of the myth to make a point about the true and living God. And that's what our Old Testament authors do sometimes. Now, that's the symbol. That's the imagery here. It's the imagery of three monsters, sea monsters, sea monsters defeated by the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, not by. Don't listen to your Canaanite neighbors who are telling you that you need to go to church with them to the first church of Baal in uh, Lake Oconee on Monday to get the real truth. No, it is not Baal. Now we'll see how that's significant, because having seen the imagery, we have to ask, what are these what are these images symbolizing? What's the kind of point that they're making? Well, in the Bible, the sea is predominantly an image of chaos. The sea is that which stands in opposition to God's well-ordered world where you can survive and you can thrive and you can flourish as human beings. Just think of Genesis uh, chapter 1, 2. Formless and void, darkness over the surface of the deep. That's the sea. But the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's the sea. At the time of creation... 
the sea had to get taken care of so that you can survive and thrive and flourish. Oh, think of the time of the flood. At the time of the flood, we, uh, we saw the other day how God uncreates and the sea covers everything once again. And you can't survive there. You can't thrive there. But God delivers Noah and his family to start all over again with a new creation. But the flood, chaos. And of course, we can kind of see that as well, right? You can watch the news and you can see the chaos that flooding brings, can't you? Whether it's the flooding of a river or if it's the flooding of an entire plateau by a tsunami. Flooding by a devastating hurricane. It still works in our own culture that flood symbolizes the chaos that stands in opposition uh, to people who want to survive and thrive and flourish in God's world. Or you might think of the time of the Exodus. At the time of the Exodus, Israel is coming out of Egypt and their goal is God's presence in the promised land where they can survive and thrive and flourish. There's only one problem standing in between Israel and Egypt and Israel's Flourishing in the promised land. And what's the problem? It's the sea. And so what does God have to do? Like God dried up the waters at the time of the flood by sending a wind. God sends a wind and dries up the waters so that his people can enter his presence and flourish. The sea stands as a symbol of that which is opposed to God's good world god's order it's that chaos and so the vanquishing of the sea is a symbol of god's kingly power over all things in heaven and on earth who can help us against the onslaught of yom and tanin and leviathan the psalmist says the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord is the one that you can depend on to hold at bay the chaos of life so that you can not only survive, but thrive and flourish as God originally intended. Now, let's look at a, a text, Matthew eight twenty three to 27. Matthew 8. 23. Uh, then he, Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake. And of course, the lake we call the what? This is the Sea of Galilee. So that the waves swept over the boat. Yeah. Are those disciples in the position of surviving and thriving and flourishing? I don't think so. But Jesus was asleep. The disciples went and woke him up saying, Lord, save us. They weren't saying, forgive our sins and get us into heaven. They were saying, deliver us from this onslaught of the sea. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Now, that word rebuke is interesting. Uh, over the weekend, we spent some time in Psalm 104. And we didn't take a look at this, but after God puts the earth on its foundations, he rebukes the waters so that they have to leave the surface of the earth so that it can be dry and you and I can uh, survive and thrive and flourish. 
The word is rebuke. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. Now, the Hebrew text was in the, the poet, poem 104, Psalm 104 is in Hebrew, but it gets translated into Greek. And that's the Bible of Jews in the first century. And Matthew uses the Greek word from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And it's the exact same word for rebuke. So when uh, when Jesus rebukes the wind here, he's only doing one thing. He's doing what he's been used to doing. He's doing what he did at the time of creation when he separated the sea and the dry land. He's demonstrating that he is the almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, with the power to do what he did at creation, separate the, what he did at the time of the flood, cause the wind to blow, what he did at the time of the exodus, divide the waters, conquer the sea so that his people can live and live life in all of its abundance. That's what Jesus is doing here in this text. Interesting that in, um, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first, first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, for me, I don't think that means the new heavens and the new earth don't have any oceans. My oldest son, who works to feed his surfing habit, would certainly say, if there are no oceans, that's the other place. That's not the good place. That's the bad place. But at any rate, John doesn't see any sea, S-E-A. And what's that mean? In the new heavens and the new earth, the threat of chaos inhibiting you flourishing is completely gone. That's heaven. No sea anymore. So when, when God vanquishes Yom and Tanin and, and Leviathan, it's a declaration that he is king and he's the one who has the power to bring life in all of its abundance and to deliver us from the threat of chaos around us. In other words, what's going on in this psalm when we start to think in conclusion about the significance of this for us is that the psalmist is, is facing chaos in his day. His chaos came in the form of the Babylonian army. And when he says, God, you are my king, you're the one who defeated Yom and Tanin and Leviathan. He's simply saying, I need you to do for me and for us now what you've always done. Going all the way back to creation when you first conquered the sea. I need you to intervene in our lives and that, by the way, is a takeaway from Jesus stilling the storm, right? Some Reformed preachers would say that story is about Jesus declaring that he's king, period. You probably have heard somebody else preach a sermon on that text saying, do you have any storms in your life? Well, I want you to know that Jesus can deliver you from your storms. And then we begin to think, well, it's either one or the other, right? Yeah, no, wrong. The point of this story is Jesus is the maker of heaven and earth with the power to calm the sea. Which is what he's always done throughout redemptive history. And throughout redemptive history, the point is God 
would you calm my storms for me? Oh, like you did in Psalm 74, like you did at the time of the Exodus, like you did at the time of the flood, like you did at the time of grace. God, show up in my life as the God whom you've always revealed yourself to be. The one who conquers chaos and who brings life, survival, thriving, flourishing, life in all of its... No wonder Jesus said, I didn't come to kill you, to destroy you, to steal from you. No wonder Jesus said, I have come that you might have life in all of its abundance. God can vanquish the threat of chaos in your life. Now, you're not probably facing a sea monster in any kind of way like a flood. Maybe loss of job. Does loss of job bring thriving or chaos? Maybe it's not loss of job. Maybe it's loss of health. Maybe the threat of chaos is not the loss of job or loss of health. Maybe it's the loss of finances in some other way. Maybe it's the loss of relationship. Either because that person that you have loved for so long is now gone and your world is turned upside down. Or maybe the person is still here, but the relationship isn't anymore. You see, we face chaos in our lives in all kinds of ways. And while I doubt that you're tempted to turn to Baal to vanquish the chaos, you can be tempted to go to other idols other than the Lord. Alcohol, uh, pleasure in material things to try to fill the hole that you feel. We can go various, another relationship. Well, the one that I'm in right now, yeah, we're married, but... uh, This relationship isn't working. It's not giving me what I need. But I know where I can go get that. And so we can go outside the bonds of marriage. It's all just going to bail in one way or another. God has shown you this morning, brothers and sisters, who he is. He is the king of creation who vanquishes the monsters. And so this psalm invites you to pray to him, to expect from him, to show up as the God he is. Your monsters might not look like mine, but your God looks like my God. Trust him now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... This word, we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would write it on our hearts. You've told us that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Strengthen our faith in you that you are a good God who's in control and who wants us not only to survive, but to thrive and to flourish. And we pray that where we're facing those threats of chaos, you would show up as the king of creation.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.